Forty Futures is a speculative fiction series about the criminal justice system, written and read by Jason Taché. Duped. It had been three days since Timothy Diallo was shot by police. Three days of grief, protest, and tear gas. The public's vitriol was focused on the police headquarters downtown. In its vicinity, apartment building entrances, restaurants, and even the computer store with its all-glass facade were now plywood, tagged with jagged lettering and black silhouettes of Timothy on white paper. The headquarters was barricaded, but those inside awaiting trial could still hear the muffled cries of protesters. Three nights ago, Timothy, visibly distraught and agitated, was yelling in a fourplex parking lot, walking in circles. He had a knife. As officers pulled up, they pinned him in and drew their weapons. Timothy's neighbors bore witness from balconies in the lawn as he lunged toward the squad cars. The video picked up gasps from onlookers, all too sure of what they were about to see. Calls for him to drop the knife came from behind the flashing lights. I can't do that, man, Timothy can be heard yelling, trying to hold back tears. Eyes glassy, his face was twisted. Timothy strained to make out the faces of the officers yelling, like a child unable to make out his parents in the audience at a school play. Just then, two thunderclaps came from behind the patrol cars. Timothy slumped to the ground, the knife bounced on the concrete. Among the shrieks and crying, one bystander yelled, her voice cracking, You killed him. You didn't have to kill him. The protests were international news, just like Ferguson, Baltimore, and Minneapolis had been years before. Videos of young people protesting Timothy's death inundated social media. So did images of the police who preached but did not practice restraint. The mayor came to speak the second night. While promoting calm and peaceful protest, he was drowned out by the pulsing and increasingly aggressive chants of Fuck you, mayor! On the third night, the protest had grown and the energy intensified. The ham-fisted response from the city and the media coverage of the first two nights pulled otherwise apathetic people out of their homes and into the streets. As the sun set, thousands of people milled about the swollen park facing the police headquarters. The crowd's agitation increased during that hot and humid night, led by an impassioned speaker who artfully laid out decades of injustice met with unrequited response. The late summer sun was setting, but people's impotent frustration was beginning to boil over. That's when the crowd's phones went off. It was the city's emergency alert system, warning that an area 15 blocks away should be avoided. There'd been another officer-involved shooting. The speaker wasted no time mobilizing the pent-up irritability of those assembled. Seen from above, the park drained like a burst pipe as people ran with their homemade signs fluttering behind them like Samara's caught in a draft. Arriving on the scene from the south, protesters saw police lights coming closer from the north. But there were no cops, no crowd, no body to avoid where the alert system warned. Confusion and conspiracy swept through the crowd. The alert was a spoof, a false flag, an opportunity to sow chaos from a malevolent actor, and it had done its job. The police, responding to the same notification, drew closer to a distrustful, angry crowd, tired of waiting for answers. Hello and welcome to 40 Futures. I am Jason Taché. Thank you for coming back and listening to episode two of this series. We're now 20% of the way there. I just got done reading the story Duped about 
this uh, emergency alert system that gets taken advantage of by a malevolent actor during uh, racial protests. This uh, particular story, before I jump into the tech and the, the ethics of it all, which is one of the things I like to do on this commentary section, is talk about you know how do we get to this reality from where we stand today. But uh, before you do, I, I just want to note like this particular story was, was uh, felt personal to me. Shortly before the pandemic, I moved to Portland, Oregon, and was here in 2020 when the police and anti-racism protests were in full swing, as well as when uh, federal authorities took over the city and uh, ostensibly to protect federal buildings, but uh, then went far beyond what their remit was here. And it was a crazy time to think about going to those protests, seeing the amounts of people that came out. It was emotional. I mean, this is the summer of 2020. Uh, George Floyd had been killed by police in Minneapolis. The pandemic was still very new and very uncertain. We are uh, in an election cycle. Uh, just everything felt chaotic uh, and voices weren't feeling heard. And night after night in Portland, in different parts of the city, people got together from all their different corners of the community to protest the injustices that they were seeing and that they were tired with and that was impactful to me to feel that energy to see those people coming together under common cause was just unique Um, and so when I was thinking about this particular story those were the scenes that I was drawing upon and so the the scene that I paint I think we've seen it in the media plenty but for me it was one that I saw on multiple nights uh, here in Portland that year. But the, I mean, obviously the the divergence here is that this this spoof, this fake text message through the emergency alert system, it didn't happen here in Portland. That's where we get to the speculative part. And when I was originally writing the list of like 40 ideas I had, that list now, I, think, I don't know, it's probably up in the 60s. But one thing that I really wanted to make sure I did was have at least one story that hit on cybersecurity issues when it came to technology and the criminal justice system. And this is that story. And I wanted to include that as a core component in this series because it is critical, the security that we build around these systems, and it is not the thing we prioritize in our discussions, and that makes me crazy. The idea that we would be collecting the type of data that we are collecting, the type of sensitive personal information that we collect within these systems that touch on really sensitive parts of people's lives that will decide people's uh, freedom is is numbing at times. It is so we're so prolifically bad at this. Back when James Comey was the head of the FBI, he gave a talk about how the legal system was actually kind of the soft underbelly of America's cybersecurity uh, infrastructure because they're just so goddamn bad at technology and thinking through these threats and then acting accordingly, even though they have tons of sensitive information held by their clients. Let's get into why this particular story, why this technology, why the ethics of today could get us to kind of the speculative future that I wrote about in Dubed. So I, I don't think 
the technology is any surprise to anyone. Like we going back to 2018, the White House announced and tested for the first time a presidential alert system, uh, which is the first time that that had uh, existed, where the president could just text out uh, whatever he wanted, he or she wanted, to the entire uh, U.S. Uh, population. Uh, so we know the technology works. We also see this happening at you know, the municipality level, the state level, usually having to do with uh, natural disasters. I know also, also living in Portland in 2020, we would get those types of notifications in regards to fire concerns as the, the fire boundary moved closer and closer to the city. Uh, that fall. And then at the, at the same time, you know, 2018 marked this time for the first time that the president had the power to text everybody. But it was also, uh, 2018 was also the year when Hawaii, if you remember, uh, everybody there, vacationer and resident, received an alert that said that a ballistic missile threat was inbound to Hawaii and that everybody should seek shelter. Uh, and this was sent in error. There was uh, no missile, uh, and people's lives were not in immediate uh, danger from a ballistic missile attack. And this happened not because of a security lapse, but because of just bad personnel systems and and, and bad, arguably bad user interface, as uh, the media at the time talked about how this particular message was meant to be sent internally. And instead, the individual sent it externally to everybody within uh, Hawaii, Hawaii's boundaries, uh, which is horrific. But the, the technology is there, and it's clearly not fully thought through. At the same time that the president was testing the, his uh, national system, uh, academic cybersecurity researchers, Basically, like, <laughs> this looks like a system ripe for abuse, and let's go figure out how. And they did, and they let the feds know uh, that the system had a back-end problem where hackers could take advantage of the this emergency alert system as that was devised at the time, or people could go further, malevolent actors could go further and create fake cell towers and send out just a burst of text messages that look very similar to the official emergency notification to, to do whatever they want with it. Um, and that's disconcerting, to say the least, because you know we're in this moment where I think at least for short-term damage, all that has to happen is the text message needs to look real, right? It needs to sound official, can't have typos and errors in it or, or, or grammatical mistakes. And then kind of if you're taking advantage of a situation where people already have heightened feelings and as a country, we are in this moment where people are primed to believe almost anything, it seems, then that seems both socially and technically like a ripe situation to take advantage of if you wanted to take advantage of it. And so that then gets into this ethics question, right? And this, this story is a little bit different from some of the other ones that I have in the series where the ethics question isn't so much about how do we treat people in the criminal justice system, but in this case, like how do hackers, how do the malevolent actors think about their ethics? I, I don't think we're far off of thinking that this is within bounds. You know, I don't say it in the story, but the whole time I was writing this, I just assumed the actor was a state actor. It was a country. It was someone with resources that would have 
a vested interest in just sowing chaos somewhere in the United States to just make things more difficult. Russia does these things now with regularity. I'm recording this on February 20th, and we don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine. But Vladimir Putin has shown himself time and time again as somebody that even if he can't do the thing that he wants to do, he will sow chaos instead. And he has done that militarily. He has done that technically. I mean, obviously, we can look back to the reports that came out on the 2016 election. The Internet Research Agency, which was uh, a Russian group, kind of a conduit for the Kremlin to basically be a state-sanctioned troll farm to sow chaos and into the uh, American social media scene during that election cycle. Hacking and ransomware are their other tools. There uh, was this report or conversation that came out of the National Security Agency in, in 2020 talking about what that election cycle was going to look like, hoping to avoid kind of the, the worst of the narratives around the 2016 cycle. And one of the people that they talked to in that article is, is basically just points out that like Russia's goal is to sow chaos. Like It's not to make sure one side wins or necessarily one side loses, but it's to sh- shake the foundations of the system itself and make people less trusting of each other. And that is a win for them. Because if we don't trust our institutions, then it weakens us as a country and it forces us to look more internally, while then Russia is able to look stronger globally. And so, like in elections, police community relations can be pushed to the brink through confusion and uh, and chaos, leveraging the heightened emotions and the political outcry that I write about in this particular piece. And so, whether or not a country or even a hacker group that's not aligned uh, would do this. I, I think it's completely within bounds currently for some folks to think that this is an okay move to make. And that should be disconcerting to us. Like the more that we are trying to even take the most banal technology, like a text message notification, such as in this story, like there's just opportunity for these things to be abused, especially when the security is not good. It is not thought through. Uh, it's not considered what permissions look like. Even after going back to the Hawaii example, there was some reporting about how the governor of Hawaii at the time wanted to be able to tweet out that that message went out in error and that people do not need to fear, but he could not find the password for his Twitter account to do that. <sighs> and I mean, I don't know if you can legislate password managers for state officials, but that might be a good idea Uh, if this is the type of situation where someone's like trying to remember like what dog birthday combo this particular account password uses. Like that's bad Uh, and password management needs to be considered as a part of public policy and similarly with cybersecurity. Luckily with the new administration uh, in the White House, at least there has been an increased attention on to cybersecurity generally at the federal level. Uh, But as we learn time and time again, state and local agencies do not have the money to be able to keep up with the demands that are, are in the threats, more specifically, that are coming at them all the time. We're seeing increased ransomware attacks on local governments, on courts, and, and people are getting locked out. They're, they're losing you know, whatever that data is. 
that is getting locked out and it's just it's a bad situation you know not all of this is technical some of it it's human it's people hitting clicking the long wrong link on a phishing email or you know bringing in software or a thumb drive that they shouldn't have into their government network uh, whatever the case is these are the things that we need to be thinking about as we digitize these systems further we're just creating more opportunities for abuse and so we shouldn't be terminally cynical about digitizing some of these systems however if we're going to be digitizing them then cybersecurity needs to be the first topic of discussion in regards to how are we going to handle the potential for abuse of these systems and with that uh, i'll get off my high horse and, and leave the discussion there for today thank you again for listening to 40 futures for links to what i talked about today check out justicetech.download that is the url this is a project written recorded and produced by me jason Tache. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be back in your feed next Thursday. Until then, take care.